Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Welcome to the latest edition of Happy Path Programming. The holiday episode. The holiday episode. It's <laughs> December 24th. And it's snowing cats and dogs here in Crested It is. Like many feet. I think so. Yeah. I I uh, did some snow blowing and as did I. Yeah, it was well over the top of my snowblower, so it was slow going. It makes it hard. You have to kind of ram it into it. Yeah, right? and yeah. back and forth. And, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of that. Not... Lots of digging my car out and uh-huh. just moving snow from one place to another. But you have a new job. I do. I do. On Monday, I started as the Kotlin product manager at Google. So moving from Google Cloud to over to the Android side of things and we'll be uh, doing Kotlin um, kind of generally. So trying to just continue to make Kotlin awesome for everything. So and Google is like a major contributor to the Kotlin project, right? They are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't have a good grasp yet what all they have contributed. The one thing that I know is that they've been working hard on a new compiler, which is codenamed the K2 compiler. And it's I th- from what I know, I think, and I could be wrong about some of this, um, is that it's a total like rebuild of the compiler. And it is... Um, Remember, do you remember this, this? I think all languages go through this cycle where they they become successful or if they become successful then one of the first complaints that comes up is compiler speed and usually what happens is that people get larger and larger code bases and the compiler gets slower and slower and slower and i remember when i was at typesafe this was the big complaint about scala like by far the biggest complaint about scala was yeah. was compiler speed. speed and uh and so then the team invested i would guess person years into mm-hmm addressing the compiler speed uh things and now in the scholar community you don't really hear about people complaining about the the compiler speed anymore um well and it seems like part of that is when you're working within like intellij is giving you feedback there's a couple parts of it yeah one is 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 making that like dev loop like your Mm -hmm. incremental compile getting your red squigglies as fast as possible, mm-hmm. like just that kind of inner dev loop. But then another one is when you just run a, a fresh compile on a project, uh, you don't want it to take minutes. You know? yeah. So so there's kind of optimizing in both directions. One is just raw from scratch compile speed, and the other one is optimizing that, that inner dev loop uh, incremental compile. Which is the most critical part to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how ideally you only do that like initial compile that could be long once a day or, you know, very minimally or your CI system is doing it. So it doesn't matter quite as much, I think, as that inner Mm -hmm. dev loop. Yeah. So, so yeah. So from what I understand, Google has been working on this new compiler in in Kotlin and and it's allegedly faster. I think 1.6 was maybe where we first saw it or maybe it's experimental. Oh, it's, I'm still new in this job. So I, just I, don't know got, tells you I think 1.6 or something just is coming out now. It just yeah, 1.6 just came out, I don't know, a month ago oh, and then okay. 1.6.10 just ah. came out and then there's even more improvements coming in 1.6.20. So um, when so. we talked to Richard Feldman, we asked about this. So, did you write rock in rock and he goes, "No." I wrote it in Rust. Yeah. And so what, what is the new Kotlin compiler written in? Oh, Do you know? 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm well, guessing Kotlin, but but yeah, but, yeah, I, but I, I, well, you know, I because I wonder because I, I yeah. feel like Richards, you know, it always. I think it's a good test yeah. of a language to write its compiler in itself, but is it always the you know the best choice like yeah. i yeah. kind of respect that choosing to write it in rust just for yeah and admitting that rock is not the best language to write a compiler in mm -hmm. yeah and and instead of trying to shoehorn mm -hmm. uh, a compiler into a language that maybe isn't best suited for it and then maybe spending a lot of extra time doing you know performance tweaks yeah and if it's like you start with a language like rust which is like you know performance day from day one then yeah. maybe you never have to do that yeah yeah mm. oh and i should we should mention we may have a special guest oh. show up midway through this episode we'll see, we'll, we'll see. yeah we'll but see if not we'll just you know yeah. do our usual yeah. or not our usual we haven't done it just you and Wait i chatting no while, it's it, yes it's, it's just so fun to chat with other people not yeah it I, is i enjoy no. chatting with just you but but no you're right <laughs> learn learn a ton of things yeah. um so what kinds of um you know, what kind of things, I guess I'm trying to figure out what your influence over Kotlin is now going to be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, uh, still something to, to learn. Um, I think in some ways I will be, uh, be the Google person trying to make Kotlin more successful and better for developers. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are a lot of people at JetBrains doing that. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, back to your question about Google's involvement in Kotlin. Right. Um, it was three years ago that JetBrains and Google created the Kotlin Foundation, mm -hmm. and Kotlin is now under the Kotlin Foundation, and Google is one of the primary members along with JetBrains there, mm -hmm. and now is making a lot of contributions to Kotlin itself. And, yeah, right, so it's a, it's a foundation so people don't worry about, say, like what happened to us with the uh, with the flexbook yeah it's like yeah it's, it's yeah like so it's like an open source it's out here it's not yeah. controlled by a company so yeah don't yeah foundations put it into the switzerland model of yeah. all right now we have a governance structure that allows different um entities to to have a way to steer the the direction of things and the process to make decisions and all that. And yeah, actually that's, that's one of the reasons why I think flex died was that uh, there was a point when there were a number of companies that wanted to go big into flex and, and very large tech companies. Mm -hmm. And they asked Adobe to put flex into a foundation and Adobe said, no. And then the company said, well, See you later. Yes, well, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, with that experience made me go, you know, if it's not open source, I'm well, not even doing beyond it. open source, so end, Adobe did end up open sourcing Flex. But it was I think way too, too late. late. Yeah. But just open source is not sufficient. So if you're one of these huge companies that wants to have a significant um, rely reliance on a technology. Even if something's open source, that's insufficient for you to have comfort that that you're going to be able to to influence the direction and decision making. Make sure bugs and, get fixed. And... Yeah, and so foundations are the way that has evolved mm -hmm. as the as that Switzerland approach, where where it, there is a formal process and governance model that dictates how different entities that potentially have 
differing needs, how mm-hmm. those things get resolved. And that that's, you know, Linux is in a foundation. Kubernetes is in a foundation. Like so many of these foundational technologies so, that are I'm really used across competing is technologies. Is Java in a foundation? Because um, it seems like Oracle kind of controls it. Java... That's a good question. I don't. I I should. You know, as yeah, we as know Java that. champions, we we're should both know this. Java champions. We yeah. should know these things. But I I don't know how the how that all works with with Java. I know that there is a governance model with Open JDK that yeah. is, I would think, sufficient. So maybe not necessarily a foundation, but sufficient for many entities mm-hmm. to participate in a in a in a worthwhile way. Yeah. So, um, thank you. <laughs> Coffee delivery. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So that, I should research more about the the governance of of Java. I guess there's the there's a couple different structures. There's there's the the JCP. So maybe that's kind of like the foundation. The Java community process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, that's and there's way long there's time, there's a board. And mm-hmm. so I think in a lot of ways that functions like a foundation mm-hmm. with with a, a governance structure that gives many members um, ability to influence decisions right. and all that. And doesn't is, give one company all the control. undue yeah. control. Yeah. I mean, you get control by contributing. So Google Google's control is that it's willing to put engineering send, resources. Put, yeah, put engineering yeah. resources. But everybody yeah, but the, from that. The the reason to have the governance model is let's say Google did want to make some huge compiler change or whatever to Kotlin, there's no uh, if it's just open source, there's no way to kind of make sure that that contribution will be accepted right. into mainline Kotlin, where now with the Kotlin Foundation and the governance model allows for there to be a decision-making process that mm-hmm. likely if Google is going to spend a lot of time on a feature, that likely it'll be be merged. Into yeah, the they, they, can, they can sort of go, yeah, this is a good idea up front. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. That's... Because I guess you can spend a lot of time creating a pull request and not have it accepted, and yeah, I guess yeah. you can still use it yourself, but yeah. it's not quite the same. Yeah. So yeah. So back to like compiler speed. Mm-hmm. I remember that um, when Java had had major compile speed issues long ago, mm-hmm. IBM developed EC4J. Yes. And all of us everyone that was doing real yeah. Java switched over to using EC4J, which was the compiler written, I'm pretty sure, for Eclipse to yeah, make Eclipse fast. But we were able to use it as just our normal compiler, compiler as well. And mm-hmm. that really handled the speed issues. Uh, but that never was contributed back, as far as I know, back to the uh-huh. the foundational Java project. And maybe Java wasn't even open source at that point. But but then, no, I don't but then so. Sun, I think, yeah. uh, rewrote the compiler. And made yeah, it well, it lit a fire under Sun. Yeah. 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 Because everybody was jumping ship and they go, oh, no, IBM might gain control. Yeah, I So think maybe it was... at the time, if there was a way for IBM to contribute that compiler to yeah. the actual project, then that, then that would have been... happened. But I think that was back when, you know, people still didn't, you know, they were afraid of open source, you know, yeah. and they were seeing it as a, as a, you know, playing ground to gain control over each yeah. other. You know, the the usual things. And Bill yeah. Gates said open source was a poison on, or whatever he said. Yeah. Now, of course, 
Microsoft is all about open yeah. source, man. Yeah, they do all about a huge Java, amount. doing a ton with Java now. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I ran across a blog post from, I forget the date on it, 2008 maybe by Mark Flurry. I was looking for an old Mark Flurry blog post about, um, he, he called it like open source strip mining and waste dumping or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, but I'd, I'd also come across. Does there, do you assume all of our listeners know who Mark? Flurry oh is? yeah. Good, good question. Uh, he's the founder of J boss. Okay. I've known him, known Mark for a long time. And, okay. um, he always had some, in the day, like very controversial opinions, but now I think a lot of his opinions. So this was the interesting thing is I came across this blog post where he was saying like the only way for Java to survive is is for Sun to open source it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and this you was, think this was in two thousand eight? I think two thousand eight. So that was, I mean, that was at least ten years. Yeah. Of non open source. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, and then now they, you know, long ago it was open source. And I, I think he was, I think he was very right that like Java, there's no way that Java would be where it is Which today. Which programming language do you want to use anymore that isn't open source, isn't, yeah. doesn't have undue control by yeah. one company? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, like, that's just, uh, I think Java would have died out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like baseline. I, I wouldn't use a programming language yeah. that wasn't that way because... You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So I saw uh, kind of related to programming languages, you know, the advent of code thing. Yes. It runs like I, all of December and there's these coding challenges. Right. And I've never done I've it. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've never looked into it. So uh, they do a survey of the participants mm. and by far the most program, most used programming language was Python. And well, then, um, and then I think it was the JavaScript so after that. Makes sense. Um, and then I forget I forget the total order and anyone can look up the survey. It's interested, but uh but Rust was actually very high on the list. I found that pretty interesting. It's I mean, if you're like who shows up to these things? People who are interested in you new, know, playing with yeah, new technologies. New things, yeah. You know, Rust yeah. continues to gain uh you know, interest and people keep saying good things about it. You know, every once in a while you're here, oh, it's maybe not polished in yeah. this area or that area. But, um, and, you know, from, from what, it, as somebody who uses Python, the struggles that I've had trying to create Python extensions, I, I don't know if I've ever successfully created one. It's so yeah. complex. And this Rust O2 system for creating these seamless modules most of the time you're going to do extensions for speed yeah i was like well use the fastest thing out there etc etc yeah, et cetera. yeah like, rust just makes a ton of sense i wouldn't case. want i mean for me doing a big project in rust i it's like that oh that doesn't appeal to me i think i do want all the things like garbage collectors and yeah you know, all, all the stuff that that gives you yeah but for a for a fairly compact thing to solve a particular problem, I would, and the, yeah. and the rust book, um, you know, what I've read of it is just reviews, so yeah. well written Yeah, and that's just part of the standard distribution. Yeah. So yeah. what a great way for people to get started. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, it's They've done a lot of things really well for sure. It's interesting how many cargo gets rave reviews. Sure. Yeah. Build tool. Yeah. I mean, right. A nice build tool. What a concept. Yeah. yeah um, it's, 
I don't know. It's it's just it's very interesting to see how many people have tried to solve the problem of C. You know, C it's like that that one language that we encountered. Maybe we'll interview the the guy who created it, where he goes, "Oh, I'm gonna, f- I'm not gonna replace C. I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna huh. I'm gonna fix the preprocessor so it's not different." bad language i'm gonna you know do a bunch of things but it's still it's like actually a better c which was what c plus plus was originally supposed to be and it's like and then you know go is a replacement for c you know there's all these different languages that are replacement for c yeah and it does seem like rust might be yeah you know if you're if you're going to be at that level yeah yeah paul chisano one of the creators of um the red book unison yeah in the red book the red color book uh he had a series of tweets yesterday i think about about rust and he was like like rust is at this point the total obvious choice for systems programming Mm -hmm. and he's like outside of systems programming you should really be using a garbage collector like like you should not be a human garbage collector is just a waste of energy (laughs) unless you're doing systems programming (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the first things I encountered when I tried doing any like serious C work with somebody's library is like, oh, by the way, you're the garbage collector. Yeah. It's like, I didn't even know. I I think, yeah. And I'm sure Rust like is a better, much better option for, it makes being a human garbage collector a lot better than CNC++, but still you it's a human garbage collector yeah it's a, it's extras i mean it's all the stuff we're trying to get away from with functional programming all this rote work yeah it's like no we're gonna turn that inside out and you're gonna take all of this all of these mechanisms and you're you're gonna adapt them typically using like just a lambda you're gonna go yeah. oh, here's the code that makes my program different and yeah. all the rest of the stuff is yeah. in your foundation yeah and it's like adding being garbage collector makes total sense for the kinds of things that you would yeah write rust for so uh JetBrains announced fleet a couple weeks ago it's their new oh, lightweight ide have you looked at it i haven't tried it yeah okay. i think it's in private beta it and is. they like maxed out like they had so oh, much instantly. interest instant yeah. yeah um and so uh the they did reveal that a, I think the majority of the code for Fleet is actually written in Kotlin, and some portions are written in Rust. Oh, and I was speed. like, huh, sure. "This is I mean, interesting combination for writing something that is, you know, uh, needs some serious performance, uh, but also you're writing a lot of UI, right. like high level stuff, that, native connection yeah. stuff. Yeah, so you could see that's probably and." I'd be interested to see, you know, what is the foreign function call interface or if that's how they're doing it or, yeah. you know, what, how, how would they architect that so that, you know, where's your rust and how do you talk to it? And yeah. How does it interact with, I mean, this was one yeah. of the, yeah. The interop piece, the interop piece. Yeah. Cause or whatever in Python, the biggest problem with writing, uh, modules, you know, in C or whatever is that, know c doesn't know anything about garbage collecting or anything and basically python's got this garbage collector and i think how do you how do you interact with that and that's that's where you have the global interpreter lock to say okay we'll just when you're calling this c function we'll just 
you know, sprees everything mm. in in the Python program. Yeah. So, huh. and then it gets all tricky and huh. interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how with mm-hmm. Fleet how they handled the mm-hmm. memory management. And piece. so, is it mostly? I mean, gosh, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like IntelliJ but way faster? I don't know. Yeah, um, of course. I my my guess is that they're really trying to have a a answer to v, uh, VS, VS code. code. Yeah, and so I'm guessing that it's going to be more along those lines. Because mm-hmm. I find but, myself going back and forth between, between VS Code, and IntelliJ, IntelliJ, and VS yeah. Code, and it's like IntelliJ does these things good, and then there's some like I don't know for some reason. I'm sure the functionality must be there to do some of these things, but it's just easier in VS Code to yeah. do, you know, basic search and replaces, uh, renaming and stuff like that. You know, huh. so I often use, well, I'm basically using VS Code where yeah. I used to use um, Sublime Text or Ultra Edit or all the, you know, basic text um, editors that I yeah. had before. Um, yeah, and then there's some other feature of Fleet, which is remote remote um development like because I, I think the idea that i don't want to work be working on my local machine for a variety of reasons like the um github uh code whatever it's called <laughs> you know there's there's been this like flurry of moving your development environment to the cloud hmm. and so i think that fleet also has like a cloud development model to it which i i don't know i need to dive in and learn more about this but i'm concerned about that trend especially since amazon's been just going down weekly for the last several weeks it's like what if we get too dependent on the cloud and it's like i I want to be able to just immediately drop back to local yeah if if they had that and and they they probably thought of that yeah i i really like using my machine for development mm-hmm. and there are a lot of ways that we can make that experience better mm-hmm. um i talked about that on with uh so last week i did a webinar kind of thing i don't know if that's the right way to call it with test containers remember mm-hmm. so last week we had sergey on and uh and then I, after no, it was the day before. The day before that, you and I he had the, done the webinar. Yeah, yeah. And so we talked in that. And it's up on YouTube on the Test Containers Live or something channel. But I talked a lot about why development is, I think, is moving to the cloud, and I think that we're moving the wrong pieces to the cloud. Hmm. We should be moving our service dependencies to the cloud, which hmm. is what Test Containers is doing. But because of the pain of installing development tool chains, like Ruby is so freaking hard and horrible i think that that's that's a big reason why you see this like move it's like yeah it's too hard to set up my development chain on my laptop so let's just move it to the cloud and let somebody else deal with it oh that reminds me like or we could just make it better to install our development work you know tool chains that sounds too hard that reminds me (laughs) oh this was a conference i don't know how many years ago you know it might have been you know the code mash. You remember code yeah, mash yeah. that Diane yeah. and uh-huh. yeah. anyway, um, I think they had uh, yeah they had like a morning Ruby or Rails tutorial or whatever, and I went to it, and and I had a Windows laptop. Oh yeah, I and really and they were like, I mean, you could see work. the blood drain out of their faces. They're yeah. going, oh, 
oh, we don't have, I mean, you sort of have to have a Mac to do Rails development. I'm going, wow, platform dependency yep. for your development environment. That's, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, and, and I think they were also, I think they also engaged me to help anybody else who showed up with a Windows. I've had that happen before. It's like people, yeah, I don't know. Oh, there, for a long time, Node just didn't work on Windows at all. Oh. They were just like, yeah, we don't support Windows. It's only, how many, what's, oh. what's, you know, the number of Windows machines out there versus the number of Macs? You know, oh, you like, see every developer study, and it Windows is by far the most used developer. Even developer platform. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like, even just the advent of code one, sure, okay. Windows, like, off the charts, like, so much more used. Than see, this else. just, re I, I feel like I'm being stubborn by using windows but i'm going because there's a lot of people out there who use it and this reinforces that it's like yeah. you no know, i mean i want it to work i want everything to work on all platforms but that means somebody's got to be doing everything on windows and yeah. i'm fine doing yeah. that but. yeah yeah you'll be the you'll be the one yeah i mean it'll be interesting i think wsl is gonna <laughs> so the solution is just to run Linux on your Windows, and and then it works really well. It does. It, yeah, there, there are some some issues that I've had with it, but, but sure, but it keeps getting better. Amazing. I mean, it the WSL. I've never tried. Have you tried any of the UI ones in yeah. WSL too? So, so most of my <clears throat> most of the stuff that I do now for demos and all that, I I use Windows and WSL, but then I run IntelliJ in WSL, mm -hmm. and through WSLG it renders IntelliJ as a native application. You know, it's, I don't know how what, how magically how WSLG actually does that, but. Uh, there's a few issues, but it works a lot better doing it that way than the other way is to run IntelliJ in Windows and then have it use the shared file system. And there's just like endless issues that come up mm. through that way of doing things. Mm. And so it's like, but neither are perfect yet, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, for local, for all of my like normal development, I'm on Linux and, and then I don't have to worry about any of these things, but, um, but for Windows stuff, like it, it, the WSLG is, is pretty impressive. WSL is basically just full on Linux at this point with, and I've had very, very few issues with, with the actual like Linux piece of WSL, mm. it's just the WSLG is a little And how unbelievable is it that that's just part of Windows now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the, anybody that doesn't want to try this, it does require Windows 11, the WSLG part. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I checked when they first started announcing it and at least the machines that I had said, well, it's not ready yet or something uh, like that. So yeah. I haven't looked again. Yeah. I, I, I did the upgrade. Easy. Mm -hmm. Worked worked fine. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So um, back to your job. Yeah. What um, what kind of things are you hoping to do with Colin? And you know what what kind of things are you hoping to do basically? Yeah. In this world, I I think the maybe the big picture is just make Kotlin more awesome for developers. I mean, it already is awesome, but making it even more awesome and and I don't know what exactly that looks like yet. 
the the place where I have been really interested personally in Kotlin is in the idea of being able to use Kotlin for almost everything. Mm -hmm. And so I've done a lot of experiments. This is what they call a Kotlin multi-platform around the ability to take Kotlin code and share it across a server, an Android app, an iOS app, a web app, a desktop app, a CLI app, like being able to use Kotlin everywhere. And you mean and with sing are we talking single source for all of these things? Almost single source. Okay. Almost single source. Um this is so this is where where personally I'm just like, oh, there's a lot of potential here and a lot of interesting things. So a little more detail on that. Uh I've been working on a sample application that does exactly all these things. Mm -hmm. And the UI is uh I'm doing the UI through Compose, mm -hmm. which is initially created as the Android UI toolkit on top of Kotlin. But JetBrains has taken Compose and made it work for desktop applications and web applications and iOS applications through Kotlin multi-platform. Okay. And this is what they call uh, KMM, Kotlin multi-platform mobile. I don't know. Anyways, so the idea of like sharing your, your UI code. The one caveat to this is that I don't know, and I this is something I'm sure I'll learn about as I dive in further, but the way it is today is that the web, Compose Web is a different API than Compose for desktop and mobile. So desktop and mobile have the same, the hmm. same API, but web has a different one. And I'm guessing hmm. that the reason for that is that the browser is just too constrained to be able to really take those desktop and mobile UIs and 100% port them over. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe they're working on it. But the way it is today, it is too different. It's the same composed programming model, but different different libraries that you mm. use between web and then the others. So, um, so you would have to write different code for that? For those two. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, and maybe there's some amount of sharing you can do. I haven't, I haven't dove too far into it yet, but, yeah. but at least it's like, it's Kotlin and it's the same UI programming model in the, in the, the, all those places. And so, so it'd be interesting to see how that all plays out. But, right. um, but so far been a pretty, pretty delightful experience being able to build UIs for all those different platforms as easily as and Compose, didn't they just release it last summer or something? Was yeah, it I think 1.0 came out, came out, yeah, in the last few months or so. Okay. Maybe last summer. So, so this is still yeah. pretty fresh. Oh, yeah. 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 And then it's been the JetBrains effort on top of that to take Compose beyond just Android. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, it's, you know, I think it's, it's still pretty early days on this front, but mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of potential and I have no idea if I'll be working on this at all, but, um, but so that's kind of like the, I think the interesting, uh, very kind of unknown how that's going to play out. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people are doing already is just sharing data classes and business logic across all the different platforms. And that's, that's, that's pretty solid today. And people are doing that reliably mm -hmm. um, and across the web desktop or web, web and mo all the different mobile platforms primarily so right well yeah. being being able to do that's pretty huge already it, yeah it does seem like not having to switch languages or or even maybe having a front-end person and a back-end person you know it's like 
you know, how many yeah. smaller places you don't get to have a dedicated. Right. Yeah. You, you've got more full stack people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, there's a lot of logic that, that you want to have on both sides. And so mm-hmm. being able to share those logic pieces right very in a trivial way and have it work reliably is, is a huge gain for a lot of people. Right. Um, okay. And is there anything else? Yeah, I just don't even know yet. You know, right. it's just diving in and with the yeah, holiday yeah, season, been, just getting, just been getting a few days. oriented. But but yeah, it's, it's going to be fun to yeah. to see how um, how that'll all play out. And yeah, I'm I'm excited and uh, there. I'll still be doing some Scala stuff, you know, sure, and working on our book and yep. and all that. I still think well, Scala is awesome, but Kotlin just seems like. Uh, today it's it's a much better option for the masses mm-hmm. um i love the effect systems and pure functional programming and um you know going crazy with all the scala stuff but there's there's definitely a huge learning curve too well that. and the other thing is yes there's a learning curve but i find when i study a more i don't know call it a more advanced more sophisticated language system etc when i go back to you know what other language i might be using on a day-to-day basis it's uh it it changes the way i program yeah and i think that you know is going to be and uh, is there anything you're going to miss about java i mean i haven't really written much java in a long time so (laughs) yeah yeah good answer yeah uh yeah yeah it's like not not having to deal with yeah that stuff i I, it's just it's like and now i mean i feel for all the people who are still trapped in java world (laughs) for whatever people are very happy oh some people some people are happy there and they can be functional and they can do things that you know solve their problems and that's that's great but i just I'm always kind of looking to climb up to what is the next level level? of not just productivity. Cause I used Mm -hmm. to say productivity, but since we started working on our book, I realized, no, I can, I can write broken programs really fast with (laughs) some high productivity language that doesn't think about, um, you know, uh, reliability. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, it's productivity without reliability is just yeah. noise. Yeah. Um, yeah. How can you have both? Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, there's a lot, you think, you know, all that wheel spinning, just, you know, just chasing down null pointer exceptions. Right. It's like how much, yeah. how much, you know, it's like companies are wasting vast amounts of money on that and they're losing money by not having, you know, the, the whole deal. Yeah. It's like, Okay, you know, it really is production important. issues, and yeah, yeah, we want to. It, it's very important to move forward because we still aren't. You know, I, there's so many things that you look at and you go, "Wow, there should be a, a piece of software to solve this problem." Yeah, and it's like we, we're bogged down, I think, by the unreliability of the code that we write. Yeah, yeah, among other things yeah and, you know how yeah and like so it's it's i like that you bring up null because that's called the billion dollar mistake or whatever a lot more than and, that yeah probably a lot more than that yeah. uh but i 
I think that mutability, like default mutability is actually the trillion dollar mistake. And that's one of the things that I love about Kotlin is that immutability is is it's much possible. more much more natural, much yes. more default in Kotlin. Than and Java. they look at it in like the libraries that they create. It's yeah. it's present. In, yeah. And I feel like in Java, it's just like no, everything's a variable. Why yeah. would you think yeah. otherwise? We we're just going to treat it that way. It's, yeah. Everything's mutable. In there, I mean, there's a few things like you know they have the wrappers around the the collections where if you try and mutate it it throws an exception at runtime yeah not much you can do with that um but you know in kotlin they're actually trying to create libraries that are immutable based yeah so that you get the other benefits from that so it's like yeah that both those two things yeah and even if you don't understand all the ins and outs of functional programming, the benefits that you get yep. by making things immutable yeah. um, is it's like so huge. It is. Yeah. It's huge. So it's like, okay, let's take that step one. Yeah. And um, to, I think that one of the one of the last times I wrote Java, I was sharing a date formatter or something across a multi threaded program. <laughs> And it turns out that that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea uh, <laughs> because date formatter is like not thread safe. And mm-hmm. so just you just get unexpected behavior. Like things just don't work like you would expect them to. And how is it conveyed to me, the developer, that I should not use a shared date formatter across the multi-threaded well, you should you know, just know server that. application where multiple requests are coming in? Yeah, I should just know that, right? It's what, yeah, oh, man. When I first started encountering that, you know, people would go, oh, that's not a thread-safe library. I'm going, oh? I mean, shouldn't that be like, shouldn't there be a decorator or something or, you know, some big... You know, blink tag yeah. going not thread safe. Don't you know? Be careful when you. The use idea this. that you can create and not thread safe yes. anything is yes is wrong. Yeah, everything exactly. should be thread safe. Right. So it's not something that, that you know, because a beginner programmer grabs this thing and starts yeah. using it in a context. Even a very experienced programmer like myself mm-hmm. grabs this thing and uses it in a way that and you go, is, oh. Producing it's, totally unexpected behavior. It, it seemed like it was really straightforward to use. Why? <laughs> yeah. Why would I have suspected that yeah. this wasn't that way? Oh my gosh! And then all of the, um, I, I mean, the thing that got me. I have this problem when people present one way, and then do something else, and so. Java, oh, we're smart people. We design Java. Everything's great. We, yeah, we even have a thread system and everything. And then decades later, you know what? We really need to deprecate all of those thread <laughs> methods there because that was a complete, you know, those never worked. Yeah. But all this time they were telling us we're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, this is, this is a personal problem for me yeah. is that, you know, if you present one way and then then there's this other thing which is really different yeah oh, maybe we should with that. you know the like uh at deprecated or whatever annotation yes well we should rename that to you i'm sorry yes i apologize <laughs> at apology yeah and then you have to like write out your apology in the annotation mm-hmm. yeah 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 i'm sorry i didn't know what i, I was mean, doing 
we all certainly we make mistakes, make mistakes all the time and, and I have tons of mistakes need to correct for the mistakes we've made and but i think acknowledging up front that this might not be the most awesome thing rather than well, saying the threading is just freaking hard <laughs> i've been studying various kinds of concurrency literally i mean i remember the first time i was introduced to it it was an assembly language class when i was in graduate school and i was looking i was going doing two things at once my brain is uh feeling strained by this concept yeah and that was on you know a very low level and then it's like trying to figure it out for i think this is a more extreme case or at least another version of the curse of the monad yeah it's like you know you get concurrency and you can make it work and it seems obvious to you and you're totally unable to explain it to somebody else yeah yeah so all the different explanations that i've seen and and i mean that's you know one of the things that uh zio does is manage concurrency for you so yeah yeah and kotlin coroutines are a nice coroutines nice um I would say the easy concurrency model. Which we didn't put in the book. We we started looking at it, but um it just seemed like a bridge too far. So yeah. at some point. Yeah. And I still haven't looked into Kotlin concurrency. I'm, oh, yeah. you know, it's it's good. It's yeah. um uh, yeah, I mean it's not as uh full blown powerful as like Zio or something, but but yeah. um but it's it's a nice simple API and yeah, I mean ideally works. you want something that doesn't get you into trouble like yeah. believing in threads, locks and threads, threads and locks, with yeah. um, with Java where yeah. it's like because when I was doing experiments for you know when I was writing thinking in Java and have the concurrency chapter you know I was doing experiments and trying and it's like every time you know. I'd, get these things going and they kept deadlocking and I'm going, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. And I, you know, and that annoys me too. It's like, I was blaming myself and then deck, you know, many years later you discover, Oh, it it's, never worked. Yeah. It was just, just hard for everyone. It wasn't hard. Right. It was broken. Yeah. It was broken at a fundamental level. Uh, yeah. And That's so true. it's like, ah, uh, yeah. 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 I think, you know, like, like you, uh, one of the reasons I like Kotlin is that it makes the easy path and the right path closer together mm-hmm. than other options. But they still have builders. Yeah, I'm not, I'm definitely not a fan of the Kotlin builders, but they're not. It gives you ni- a nice DSL syntax, but you know, as you know, I really don't like the mutability. Well, yes, yes, and um, originally in the book, I had a complex um you know i don't know what it was a two or three dimensional structure and i wanted to initialize it but in an immutable way and i couldn't figure out how to do it but svetlana showed me how to do it but it's like kind of mind twisting yeah gotta turn your brain around and then later she said you know we should take that out and use builders instead because it's so hard to get your mind around, I mean, it, it, it's another one of those kind of functional programming things where yeah. you go, okay, I see the benefit of this, but it's hard to twist my mind around yeah. so that I can do this naturally. Yeah, and um, so I understand the the reason because you know if you look at a builder, 
it's pretty straightforward to a common builder. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's the uh, Lambda with um, receiver pattern or what's, um, what's that called? Yeah. Which is what, yeah, it's what they called it. And then when I finally figured it out, I said, Oh, that's an extension Lambda is what that is. Yeah. And um, that's how they, I mean, it's like a little DSL. Yeah. And so that's, that's how they implement it. But, yeah. and it's, I mean, when I was reading Runar and Paul's book and I came across this thing where they're going, well, the important thing is not, you know, you can have mutability under the covers as long as it's never visible. Hmm. And so that kind of shifted my uh, perspective on, on like, what is immutability? Yeah. And, and even the builders, but the, but the real question is, is it invisible? Right. What they were talking about was Yeah, invisible. and I'd say that it's not invisible. No. So an example of this it, from Kotlin DSLs that I see is, so let's say you've, you've got a DSL where you've got a list of options. Mm -hmm. And in your DSL, you allow the user to say option foo, option bar, right? They're, so they're calling an option method. Uh, in the Lambda with receiver, the Lambda extension method, you as the developer have no idea. It's not conveyed to you through that API. If I call option twice, is it adding each of those to the list? Is there, a, is there even a backing list that's mutating when I call each of these? Or is it overwriting? option maybe i can only have one option and by specifying calling that method more than once i'm actually just overriding it sequentially or something so so the actual it is actually the mutability is actually leaking through so that then the user needs to know by looking at essentially the api what is this thing actually doing? And I've had to look into the source code for a lot of builders to be like what is actually happening here is this is this mutating this thing how is it mutating is it adding it to a list like uh what how is the list initialized what are the defaults of the list like so it's one of those places where where i think that mutability leaks through and creates i think a, a poor experience because it then makes me have to learn what the internals of it are the build i mean the builder pattern is we're creating an object in multiple steps yeah. that's the key and so that and i guess if you look at it from okay if the atomicity of the creation process is um the I, nothing there are no side effects. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, creating an object is kind of a side effect, isn't it? Anyway, there's, an, there's, yeah, there's no side, no effects side effects until yeah. I call, give me the object. Yeah. If that's your sense of atomicity, then it's like, oh, okay, you know, there's the builder. I do things to it. Nothing really happens until I call, give me the object, yeah. you know, and then, then it's like, okay, this, the constructor's complete. Yeah. But because those steps are in there, it seems like I'd say the leaking is probably from, oh, okay, I'll create an object and put it in there. And, you know, if I get partway through and the thing fails, then what happened because I was creating these intermediate things and putting yeah. them in there? And it's like, well, it depends on what the programmer is yeah. doing, I guess. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it does seem like yeah, it doesn't guess... have to leak out maybe, but it can. 
Yeah, but it can. Yeah. I mean, if you're yeah. using it, you're going, okay, I got to think about what happens if this thing fails partway through. Yeah. If you're conscious of that, then you're more likely to not have any impact if the builder fails. Yeah. But I guess like no guarantee with behavior, what I really don't want is the answer for any question I have to be, it depends. And right. with, with mutable builders, almost always that I can come up with a question that the answer is, it depends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't want there to be any, it depends answers. I want there to be, types that convey exactly what valid states are <laughs> and constructors immutable constructors to create those types and yeah um well yeah that's i mean i guess that's the whole i guess the foundational answer in concurrency is it depends, it depends. it's yeah. like well you know what strategy should i use to implement yeah. my current well it depends yeah and it's like that's that's kind of it yeah and yeah. how do i do x concurrently or whatever the answer is it depends on depends. what your needs yeah. are yeah. and it's like what you've done is you've just dropped a whole bunch of homework in my lab if <laughs> if if i'm using a builder yeah. i'm going oh i can create an object well it depends oh now i need to go and dig in and figure out how this builder yeah. is actually working it is no longer this transparent utility yeah. that i can just not worry about it yeah. just does work for me and now it's making me do work for it yeah i don't like that yeah and and i think maybe the defense of builders is that sometimes apis it's really hard to model the valid states in an immutable typed way mm -hmm. and probably a lot of times around protocols like you think about trying to do this around the http specification there's so many places where the protocol itself in http the answer is it depends and so mm -hmm. if you're if you're building something on top of a protocol where the answer is de it depends then probably you're gonna have to at some point your the usage of your API around that protocol is the the answer to a question is going to be well it depends because the underlying protocol it depends so yeah I mean just uh, just just saying that like all of a sudden you're you're steaming along doing work and then somebody says it depends and then oh, yeah suddenly it opens up to all these different possibilities that you have to figure out yeah. Or you have to try. and that you can't validate at compile mm -hmm. time, which is one of the reasons why I hate the it depends answer is because whenever the answer is it depends, you can't validate it at compile time. And I think we ran into a little of that like in the last couple of days when we were looking at resource cleanup. Yeah, and and the the trickiness to that part of the time part of the problem I think with that is that you, a lot of the time you don't have to worry about resource cleanup you know garbage collector takes care of it or thing is yeah but then when you so that means when you do you have to go okay i've got to try finally you know try catch finally thing here but then in the finally if i close this other thing it could throw an exception and how how many catches do i have to do before i know that i've caught everything in it <laughs> is that a yeah then you've got like dependent resources and managing the closing in the right 
order and the, yes, all the different the right places order. where exceptions can can get thrown and the handling. All right, this one threw an exception, but I still need to close the outer one. And, and you don't know if you've done it right until the error happens. And the error mostly doesn't <laughs> yeah. happen. And so it's like you've got code in there that is broken, but you don't know because yeah. you go, oh, this order seems correct and nothing goes wrong. So yeah. on you go. And a lot of times it's hard to write tests for that kind of stuff too. Yeah, because you you have to generate the failure, yeah. all the different possible failures, <laughs> and then and and like what if maybe the order doesn't matter that much in many cases? Yeah. So you get used to thinking, oh yeah, I'm doing the order right, and then you come across something where it does. It's like, yeah. Oh, what's happening? Um, Definitely a place where it's just way too easy to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You want, you really want the library creator to be the one that decides how cleanup works. Yeah. So that you don't have to think about it. Yeah. And I think that was really the idea of destructors in, in C. I mean, they hmm. have, uh, what was it called in, um, in Java? Uh, hmm. The, Oh, the equivalent yeah. of the no one really uses them, right? Well, it's deprecated. Oh, it's deprecated. They, yep. Again, twenty years later, they go, yeah. "Oh, oops, this actually doesn't work. We got to deprecate it." Huh. Yeah, you know, and it's probably I I don't remember what the discovery was, but it was huh. like so bad that they had to deprecate the um, wow, whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, I mean at. How many of these things have to happen? Yeah. Well, and then there's the thing that um, that Brian Getz talked about in this video that I saw sometime in the last year where he's going, oh, you know, the serialization and deserialization, we really need to do something about that because it's a security hole. Yeah. And we had some, some debate about that on Twitter after our... Uh, talk we did it. Oh, whether the, it was a security. Well, Brian Getz said it was a security hole, so yeah, I'm going to believe some him. Security issue there. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think it was that you could inject code yeah. in the yeah, and then hand it to the other thing to be deserialized. And yeah. You could put run whatever code you wanted. Yeah, there was some issue there. Mm -hmm. Not quite as bad as the uh, log for J issue, but well, only be. <laughs> I I think it could be worse, but. <laughs> You know, it's like yeah. log4j is just, well, yeah, here's an interpreter just right out here in the open and throw us your code and we'll run it. Any input we log is uh -huh. vulnerable. Yeah, we, we solved a problem for somebody by doing that yeah. and oh, created a huge number of problems we're gonna, for everybody else. A little um, foreshadowing to next week, we're going to dive into log4j and log4shell and the some of the open source things around that with a special guest so that'll oh, be fun. nice yeah well that should be very interesting yeah. yeah yeah so i'm super excited about the job and have no idea what uh what it entails what i'm going to work on yeah where where it's all going to go but um i guess as a product manager i'm supposed to listen to people so if any of our listeners have oh. have uh requests for what they want to see in Kotlin, and where oh, they want to see Kotlin. How about go. a ternary operator? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, that you know that came up on Twitter. I and, uh twice. I saw two two people going. I yeah, really need the ternary. Really need the ternary operator. Why? 
why do you need the yeah, battery I operator? Mean, I because I'm, I'm not gonna to I'm I'm not gonna totally shut down that request um, yet because maybe there's information I don't have. That's right. But my initial reaction is that that the what I've always appreciated from the ternary operator is that it's an expression. Sure. But it turns out that Kotlin's if then is is an expression as well. So. Almost everything is an expression <laughs> so, in yeah. Kotlin. So, uh, so I, I haven't found personally, I haven't found the need for a ternary no. operator in Kotlin, well, but you can, I'd like to hear more about why. Yeah. People well, that. yeah. If you can figure out what need it satisfies and if it's just brevity, then, well, I, I think the, I've never e- been able to easily read, I mean, you know, C is that ternary operator. So I've been exposed to them forever, but every time I come across one, it's like, okay, stop. Think about this. What is this actually doing? Right. And then whereas Just an if expression, gives you some cognitive overhead that you got to. Right. Apply. And you can do everything with an if expression. Can you even have curly braces with a ternary operator? I don't remember. You know, in other words, oh, right. ternary operators yeah. usually for yeah, really single. Yeah, brief. Single. Yeah. It's kind of like. I'm guessing in Kotlin you could throw braces in there. But... In Kotlin you could. But in yeah. Java. Oh, in Java? I don't know. With a ternary? I don't yeah. think so. But... Yeah, I don't know. About that. Yeah, I mean, no, it's like we don't know it because you wouldn't think of doing it. Right. Um, yeah. And then how do you, well, yeah, because how would you return values from that? Um, Maybe you could toss a lambda in there. I don't, I don't know. At this point, but, but yeah, but whatever. But yeah, you, I just, yeah. Make everything an expression. Yeah, well, <laughs> and if, if can do everything that a ternary expression can do, then, and it's clearer, I yeah. argue, yeah. then why would you? need a ternary expression yeah it's just yeah. going to make your code less i'm i not going to shut down the idea sure. immediately because i would like to hear more but my initial mm. reaction is that i haven't personally needed a ternary I, operator in kotlin <laughs> don't know that yeah I'd, I'd have to say what what pain point is it solving yeah, yeah. so but other than that you're and sometimes the pain point is familiarity like maybe people are really accustomed to using ternary operators in java and so but then we get, you know, while loops. Yeah. It's like, I that that's probably one thing I would say, you know, Kotlin could have left out the while loop and nobody would have missed it. Yeah. Because you can do that with... It's always a hard thing, I think, to find the balance between how much do we try to move you out of potentially broken paradigms into something new and how much do we give you something you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a balance. There's never probably... A, a hundred percent, you know, one way or another, you know, there's trade-offs in both directions. And so I guess so. But if it's something where it's duplicated functionality, mm-hmm. that to me, it's like, okay, that's just cognitive overhead. Yeah. Cause it's like, oh, now when I'm reading code, I have to go, oh, here's a four. Oh, here's a while. I see it's doing the same thing right. as a four, but it's just a different. This is one of the reasons why I think Scala is not necessarily the awesomest for the masses is that there's just generally too many ways to do things. It is. I mean, to, it it was, there were all these experiments. Right. And you have this legacy of PhD experiment, PhD postdoc experiments in a language. Right. And And it's like, well, let's try them and see what works and what doesn't. Well, we now know a lot of things are maybe counterproductive and it would have been nicer to, but in Scala three, they they did a, a lot bunch of, of yeah. other cool yeah. stuff. I mean, yeah, yeah. Scala three, I think, is a lot better chance for 
larger adoption than yeah. Scala 2 just because they've taken right. a lot of those here's 10 different ways to do this thing and reduced it down to three. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause if I'm reading code and somebody's using one of the other 10 different ways, I have to figure that out. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, that's, that is unfortunate because you really do. It, it's needless confusion. Yeah. But now we know that. Um, and some of the improvements in syntax in Scala 3 is just, it's like, ah, finally, yeah. I'm much more comfortable with with it than than what we had before. Speaking of while loops, I don't think I've written one in a really long time. And oh, yeah. I've written them to demonstrate what a while loop is. That's, <laughs> That's it. it. It's like in, like, oh man, have I ever written one because I go, oh yeah, I could use a while loop here. I don't know. It's just, well, and also my awareness that, okay, and then the reader of this code is going to have to go, oh, a while loop. I wonder why they used a while loop. Oh, okay. They could have used a for loop, but they just used a while loop. Here. Or recursion. Or recursion, or <laughs> I guess. Recursion is definitely hard for my brain to grok a lot of times, but I do find that I... I have a bet an easier time grokking recursion than I do a while loop. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think for me, the big jump with recursion was, and I think, I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, I always find recursion confusing when they introduce it like an early part of a language uh, because I'm going, wow. Yeah. I mean, the number and, of times I've had to write something recursive in the last decade is so few. Right. It's, and so you're going, why are you teaching me recursion? And then when you understand that, oh, it's because map and fold and, you know, all right. these, we have all these higher level abstractions are now. implemented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, recursively. it's a foundational thing, but it's hopefully something low level enough that most people dev don't have. Yeah, to so they're immutable, themselves. and you yeah. know, they're they're all those things. So, so you get these rock solid pieces. So you don't ever actually write recursive code yourself. Yeah. You simply use it, yeah. and you can say, "Oh, and that's why we've taken the the for loop and we've turned it inside out and turned it into you know a map or flat map yeah. or you know all those different things." Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I expl now I understand. You wanted to show me recursion, so you could show me how you could do this <laughs> loop yeah. immutably. Yeah, and it's like now that I know that, I don't have to write that code myself. <laughs> okay, yeah. it all makes sense yeah. now. But yeah, it's like, do you first teach the recursion and then the fold, or the fold then the recursion? <laughs> I would say the second way yeah, because so. if you teach recursion, I mean, my impression was, oh, so I guess I have to use recursion everywhere. Right. Yeah, and and the answer is yes, but you don't have to write it, and I that part I didn't get. Yeah, you know, and so it's like no, it's it it, it scares a lot of people off. They go, yeah. oh, functional programming. Yeah, that means you're writing recursion everywhere, and you're going to be stuck every time you need to do any kind of loop. You're going to have to <laughs> you have to go okay, recursion. How does that work again? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's so well, and it's the same kind of thing with monoids and monads and things like that. And it's like, well, what you want to do is be able to assemble these, you know, compose these things together and know that it works okay. And you go, wow, that sounds like magic. Well, let me show you the magic. It's monoids right. and monads and stuff. Yeah. And you go, oh. And if you introduce those too early, then it's like, oh, wow. 
Am I, do I have to be thinking in math space all the time? Right. The answer is no, but you don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the way that a lot start of this with the is four comprehension and then mm -hmm. unravel, unravel yeah. to the monad. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to do in the book. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, our special guest is um, still asleep. I, well, it is a holiday, it but, is, um, yeah. but we'll, we'll get them on yeah, in a future eventually. Day, so. But it was fun just to yeah, was, catch up with exactly. you. Hear about your new job, which is really exciting. We'll yeah. be able to talk more about Kotlin stuff. Yes. Yes. That'll be fun. It will. <laughs>